Welcome to the podcast. Hello, I'm Anna Jones. And I'm Katerina Vitozzi. And this week on Sky News Climate Cast, we're talking about climate lawfare, using the courtroom as a weapon in the global fight against climate change. Now, climate litigation is a fairly new tool for tackling climate change. Activists and lawyers describe it as the last resort, but it is becoming increasingly common practice. In countries all over the world, governments and companies are being taken to court as claimants argue that they're failing to be protected against the effects of climate change. And the climate activists have had some important wins. This week saw two remarkable cases and we speak to the people at the very heart of them both. Yeah, firstly, we're going to be speaking to Pierre de Rake from Friends of the Earth in the Netherlands, who won their case against the fossil fuel giant Shell in the Dutch courts, resulting in the court ruling that Shell must reduce their carbon emissions by 45%. We couldn't help, you know, falling in each other's arms uh, for a very short time. And, and it's, it's such a huge victory. We are very, very proud, actually. And we speak to Anjali Sharma, a 17-year-old activist from Melbourne in Australia who has taken her environment minister to court. I've grown up with climate impacts. I've seen climate impacts in my own backyard, and I feel a responsibility to um, work towards solutions that will um, stop other people from facing these climate impacts. And that's why I'm so passionate about what I do, and that's why I juggle it alongside school. And then later on, we'll speak to Tessa Khan, human rights and climate lawyer, who was one of those who took on the Dutch government and won. We don't have to be winning every case for it to still build a huge amount of momentum, ultimately vindicates what we're saying. So, Anna, what a week. Courtroom drama in the climate change sphere doesn't get more dramatic than this, does it? I know, quite extraordinary. And uh, we've had uh, scenes painted for us of, of hugging in courtrooms, even in the time of coronavirus. So there's some happy people around this week. I mean, it's complicated, as litigation often is, but we'll try and walk you through it gently. Well, let's get cracking, shall we? Because plenty of people to speak to. First, a peer de Rake from Friends of the Earth who won their landmark case against Royal Dutch Shell. Uh, now, the oil giant was told it had a duty of care to do more to reduce its carbon emissions in a ruling that could be far-reaching for other fossil fuel giants. Uh, Shell was ordered to cut its global carbon emissions by 45% by the end of 2030, compared with 2019 levels. Yeah, that's right. It's the first time a company's been asked to align future policies uh, with the climate goals of the Paris Agreement. So really interesting stuff. Pierre de Rey, thanks very much indeed for, for joining us today. Now, you took on the oil giant Shell, amongst other people, and won. So what do you make of the court ruling? Well, it's, 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 it's very hard to believe, actually. It was, you know, we are celebrating and we have been shouting and crying. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's really incredible. I mean, this is so important, of course, for, for our organisation, but more importantly for the climate. This is exactly what the world needs. We need companies as Shell to, to join and step in and take responsibility. And so this court case has been so important uh, and, and the, the judgment and the verdict is, is, yeah, well, it's unimaginable, actually. We still can't believe it truly, but it is true. So, 
And you say that Shell needs to do their bit. Of course, their lawyers argued in court, didn't they, that the company was taking what they called serious steps uh, to move away from fossil fuels. They kept reiterating they were on track to be net zero by 2050. But the judge has ordered them to reduce their carbon emissions by 45% by 2030 from 2019 levels. That's what you were arguing for. So how much of an acceleration does that represent? It's a pretty rapid reduction, isn't it? It's a net reduction. Uh, so it is, it is, it, it's a huge undertaking for them. And uh, if you look in, in, into what, what, you know, their exact uh, figures and, and where they are now, it, it concretely uh, more or less means that they cannot, at least cannot uh, start exploring for new oil and gas fields. Um, so they can use the, their current um, level of what they have in stock, so to say. Um, but it is, it, it is a huge, huge uh, difference. And, and they have to start from today, from just a, a few hours ago. Um, so it, it really means that they will have to change their policy and they will have, have to do much more than, than what they were, were planning to do. And I think the court case today and, and the judgment in itself has been very clear. Um, it, 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 it is uh, true that a private company as Shell has an, a, a, a responsibility. Uh, so it's not longer the case that you have to be a state uh, as part of the, the Paris uh, Protocols. Uh, they have their own uh, uh, responsibility um, and they have to act very, very quickly. So that, that's, we consider it a, a huge victory, not only on this particular case, of course, but it is a, it, it is a big sign to the oil and gas world uh, globally, actually, that they really have to take action. Yes, and, and we should point out as well, haven't we, that Shell have, since this verdict, said that they expect to appeal against what they've called a disappointing uh, court decision. And I'm interested, you mentioned uh, the Paris Agreement. Um, you contested that Shell should align their future policies with the climate goals that were set out in that agreement. But Shell wasn't a signatory to it. It was countries around the world, wasn't it? So explain to us why you thought that they should be held liable for breaching its terms. What we say is that what in, in order to, to reach the, the, uh, what is needed in the Paris uh, protocols and the Paris Agreement, uh, companies as Shell have their own responsibility and need to take part and need to step in. Uh, we won't reach th this 1.5 degrees uh, of climate change as a maximum if they refuse to engage themselves in what is needed. Um, so, and, and that I think that's the biggest news of the biggest the biggest outcome of this court case. That this court has said that indeed, even even if you are not part of the uh, officially of the Paris Protocol, you have to step in and you have your own responsibility and you have to align your policies in line with with the, what Paris and the climate science actually says. So what's next? Any more plans for um, other companies, other action? Well, I think first things, we have a small celebration tonight, of course. <laughs> we are really excited about this. <laughs> we know, we know, uh, we are, you know, we are part of the Friends of the Earth fa family globally. So many of our colleagues are, have been watching this case uh, very carefully. And we are in contact with groups who are considering to, to do the same. Uh, there, there, are, there are, of course, many, uh, many climate cases going on uh, globally, but this is the first one to actually ask for a new policy, for other policy. So, uh, yes, we will carefully look into the, the, the whole explanation of the verdict, of course, and we will see and we will sort of uh, analyse what the possibilities would be in possible other countries or with other corporations. Well, Pierre DeRay, thanks very much indeed uh, for taking a pause in your celebrations to talk to us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. 
Well, let's get to what this ruling might mean for the future of fossil fuel companies. Let's bring in Ian King, Sky News' business presenter. So it's very difficult, I think, to say what the long-term impact of this particular ruling will be, because first of all, Shell is going to appeal against it. Secondly, there's a question over whether this ruling is applicable only to the Netherlands or whether it's applicable to Shell's worldwide operations. And then thirdly, um, it's got to be pointed out this wasn't an absolute victory for the environmental groups because the court ruled that Shell's not currently in breach of its obligation to reduce emissions, which is something that the environmental activists had argued. And then, of course, uh, there's another question, which is uh, how Shell is supposed to comply with this ruling. The court gave no clues on that or indeed how it's going to be monitored. So there are an awful lot of question marks as to what this will mean going forward. I think, nonetheless, it will have some ramifications. And that is because right now there are literally thousands of these sort of cases being teed up to go into courts around the world. Traditionally, uh, Companies like Shell have only been held to account for past behaviour, not for things that they're doing right now or that they may do in the future. And so accordingly, you're seeing courts and judges everywhere around the world looking for precedent when they can uh, get their hands on some. So if this is taken as a meaningful precedent by other courts around the world, then yes, it will have an impact on the oil and gas sector more widely. So there are a lot of questions as to how meaningful this could be. But nonetheless, we haven't actually had a ruling like this before, which is why some people are saying that there is a parallel here uh, with some of the early cases that were brought against big tobacco back in the 1960s and 70s. And and if that wasn't enough, we're going to take you to Australia for another ruling uh, there that could have even wider implications because this week an Australian court ruled that whilst it would not force the Australian Environment Minister to veto a coal mine expansion, it did agree that the government had a duty of care to the country's young people over the impact of climate change on their health and future livelihoods. So, and yes, it's it's an extraordinary group that took this particular legal action, wasn't it, Katharina? It's really not what you'd expect, put it that way. Eight teenagers and an 86-year-old nun. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, And she was there because she was acting as their legal guardian, essentially, um, because they were all below the age of 18. So uh, an extraordinary group of young people. We were lucky enough to speak uh, to one of them. In fact, the lead litigator, she's just turned 17, Anjali Sharma from Melbourne. And she's been juggling her schoolwork. She's got exams going on. Well, I know, also... she makes me feel very lazy. <laughs> well, you are, Katerina, let's be honest with you. Katerina is so not lazy. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> Scrap that. Um, not lazy at all. Anyway, um, Anjali Sharma is certainly not lazy. She took on uh, this legal action as well as all her schoolwork. Let's listen to her. Let me ask you about the court case, an extraordinary thing. You have not been successful in your attempt to force the Australian government to ban a coal mine expansion. You found that out, presumably, in the last few hours. How how are you feeling about that? Yeah, well, like you said, we haven't been successful in um, getting the court to grant the Environment Minister an injunction. But what we have been successful on is for the court to acknowledge that the Environment Minister has a novel duty of care. Um, As a person in power, true all young people in Australia, 
Australia um, to acknowledge that her decisions will have a direct spillover cost um, and affect our futures. Um, the court accepted all of our evidence on the risks of climate change, um, accepting that every single one of us litigants has a direct and personal story that will mean that we are at the forefront of the climate crisis. The court accepted that like millions of Australian children will be facing um, adverse climate impacts in the next few years. And so we consider today a win because the court has um, accepted the biggest part of our argument, which is that the environment minister owes us a duty of care. And now while the court today didn't decide to grant an injunction, we have been granted an order, um, both parties to come together and work out um, a way forward out of this. Um, the court has um, is still to decide on how um, the court's decision to um, acknowledge that the environment minister has a duty of care will affect this mine. So we're still, um, the, the court is still open to submissions on whether the mine can actually go ahead. Um, so while it might, might seem like we've won the battle but not the war, the war is still um, still going on and the last part of this battle is still up for grabs. A juggling school and court action is quite a big deal. How many days did you manage to get into the courtroom? I was only in the courtroom one out of the four days that there was an actual hearing. Um, yeah, during the time that court was going on, I was in a pretty heavy period at school too. Um, and I live quite a distance away from the court, um, around one hour in public transport. Um, so I was only able to get in one day, but I watched the live stream as often as I could. Um, and yeah, like you said, I am juggling school with um, this court case with all of my other climate action work that I do. I organize a school strike for climate, but um, I prioritize my future over anything. And I believe that if I'm going to school, I should be studying for a real and tangible and guaranteed future. That right now, the decisions that the government are making, they're not guaranteeing this future. Um, I've grown up with climate impacts. I've seen climate impacts in my own backyard and I feel a responsibility to um, work towards solutions that will um, stop other people from facing these climate impacts. And that's why I'm so passionate about what I do. And that's why I juggle it alongside school. When you've been going through this process, Anjali, have you been getting messages from other young people who've seen what you've been doing? Because I suppose part of this is not only the, the legal process, but, you know, you're a campaigner, you're an activist, you want to raise awareness of this. Do you think you've been successful in that part of the process? 100%, yeah. Um, I had an interview earlier today where someone said something like um, people have been labeling you Australia's next Greta Thunberg what do you think about that and my answer was that you know Greta Thunberg while she might be labeled the spearhead of the climate movement or whatever there can't be ever a single spearhead of the climate movement so while I am the le the um, legal lead applicant on this case um, and there's seven 17 inches behind me we are just the um, I guess the representatives of this case um, we're bringing this class action on behalf of so many people um, millions of Australia's um, children um, and there's so many people standing behind us, our team of lawyers, our, our media team, our parents. Um, and we're just we're doing this for so many people. And I think if our goal was to inspire people, then we really have done that. And um, I'm really glad to be successful in that regard. And, and will you stay in touch with the seven other teenagers involved in this action? And also the person we haven't mentioned as well, the 86 year old mm -hmm. nun who's been your your litigation guardian, hasn't she? Because you were under age you had to have an older person as part of your group. Tell us a little bit about her and are you all going to stay in touch, do you think? Yeah, well, um, as for the um, eight of us, us lit um, litigants, um, we've been friends for um, before this case. I mean, 
we haven't been as close as we were, obviously. You get very close to people when you see the Australian um, environment minister with them, apparently. Um, <laughs> but we, we've been we've known each other for a while now, so we're definitely going to stay in touch. I think that they're all amazing people. I'm so, so incredibly grateful and honoured to be doing this beside them. In regards to Bridget, um, I cannot even tell you my, my feelings about Bridget. Um, Bridget is just... She is one of the most passionate people that I've ever met. Um, the first day I met her at the court, um, it was freezing, it was pouring rain, but Bridget was just the energy for everyone. Um, the lawyers were running around, the barristers were panicked about um, this submission or that submission, but Bridget was just, um, she was just calm. She ran a whole press conference. Um, <laughs> I think that she is so passionate about what she does she's been doing um she's been a litigation guardian for so many years um for young asylum seekers and i'm so grateful to have her as my litigation guardian i've learned so much from her and i really hope that when i'm her age i'm still i still have the passion that she does um because she's the hope that we need for the world well we we shall let you go i know that you've got exams tomorrow so we we mustn't keep you up (laughs) yeah best um, of luck with them best of luck with them what a week (laughs) thank you so much So we've spoken to people who are right at the centre of these two incredible um, cases. But let's get a bit of an overview now then of just how significant they are and those rulings are for what happens now and in the future. Yes, exactly. We talked to Tessa Khan now, co-founder of the Climate Litigation Network, also a member of Agenda's legal team. Now, they took on the government in the Netherlands and they won. Tessa Khan... So good to have you here on Climate Cast, um, and what a week uh, to have you on as well. It's uh, been extraordinary, hasn't it? Um, two big cases have concluded this week, one that went the way of the activists, the other that didn't. Uh, but first of all, more broadly, to what extent is legal action becoming a means of making progress on climate change? How much is legal action on the rise? Well, I mean, it is unquestionably on the rise if you just look at the number of cases that have been filed over the last five years there's been a huge uptick globally in the number of cases being filed against both governments and fossil fuel companies around the world so there's certainly it's certainly being used more as a legal tactic and I think that the cases that we saw concluded this week confirm that it is having a absolutely massive impact on the course of action that governments and companies have to take to address the climate crisis. Do you think it was always going to take this trajectory? Because I know that you were involved in one of the very first and largest um, court actions like this. Um, But now, you know, a few years later, we're having, you know, cases like we've seen this week coming to a close. Did you ever think it could get this significant and be used in this way? Well, I think we always hoped that it wouldn't be necessary because courts are only ever called in when governments, parliament, you know, the executive fails. Um, So I think it's unfortunately the result of the fact that governments and industry are way behind where they need to be. And at the same Mm. time, the impacts of climate change are becoming increasingly clear. The stakes are becoming higher. The amount of time we have in which to take action to head off this massive crisis is also reducing. So it's inevitable, I think, that unless there is a sharp turnaround, 
um, in the way that governments and the fossil fuel industry approach this problem, we'll for sure continue to see action rise. And, and you've mentioned agenda. We should explain what that is. It was a case that you yes. were involved with, again right. in Holland. Um, exactly. So talk us through it because it was an extraordinary achievement. Yeah, so that was the first case in the world that resulted in a court ordering a national government to reduce national greenhouse gas emissions. So agenda this charity, basically an environmental charity in the Netherlands, um, together with about 800 Dutch citizens, brought a case against the Dutch government saying that the government's failure to reduce emissions sufficiently by 2020 would result in the violation of the standard of care and human rights that the government owes its citizens. Um, and the court agreed, the district court, the same one as the one that made this decision, um, agreed with Agenda in 2015. The government appealed Agenda 1 again. The government appealed Agenda 1 again in the Supreme Court. So that was kind of the end of that. And what about um, the comparisons with tobacco? We, we've heard a lot about the increase in cases on climate change being reminiscent of what happened decades ago over tobacco and a few successful cases at first. Some are saying that that could, like tobacco, uh, end up with the tide turning and more and more coming in. Do you see comparisons? Do you think that it's worth uh, comparing the two? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth comparing the two insofar as, you know, the sort of first wave of tobacco litigation, for the most part, was unsuccessful. Um, but what it did do was erode the industry's social licence and reputation and it got a lot of facts out into the open as to, you know, what those companies have known about the impacts of smoking and so on and it basically led to enough pressure that they ended up, you know, changing often their practices in countries or reaching massive settlements in the US um, with state governments to help pay for the public health costs of of smoking. So, yeah, I mean, whether I think that's the other really important thing to keep in mind is that we don't have to be winning every case for it to still build a huge amount of momentum yeah. that ultimately vindicates what we're saying. F finally, I, I, I wonder what your view is on to what extent legal action is likely to replace street activism as the way most likely to enact change on the issue of climate change in the future. Yeah, sadly, I think we are uh, in such a acutely pressurised spot that we need everything at the moment. We are we mm. need absolutely every tactic, and there will be people in the streets, people in the courts, you know, people in parliament, all trying to push this agenda forward. No one thing is gonna is gonna do it. We need every tool in the toolbox if we're going to get to where we need to be. So, Katerina, if that wasn't enough news for one week. There's been... I know, we're going to need to lie down after all this. <laughs> <laughs> She's not lazy, though. Um, <laughs> let's crack through some of the other big stories because there's been so much around. And first of all, I know there's been really some have, new yeah. research this week about the global temperature rise and the speed at which it's happening. Yeah, this is a new forecast that's been uh, made by the UN's World Meteorological Organization. And they predict that there is now a 40% chance that global temperatures will hit 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels within the next five years. And that is a revision and a significant one of the forecast they made last year when they thought the chances were 20%. Um, now, they say that this... Were 
worsening of the odds, if you look at it from this climate perspective, is due to improvements in technology uh, showing that actually the world had warmed more than they previously thought. Uh, And why this 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature is important is because that was the level that the 2015 Paris Climate Accord wanted to try and strive to. You know, they said we'll keep temperatures below two degrees, but ideally under 1.5 to prevent the really worst detrimental effects of global warming. And also we do know, of course, that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere contributes to global warming. And there's Mm. been a study announced this week, a big study, into how potentially carbon capture might help. Yeah, and these uh, researchers uh, from a team at university at the University of Oxford, and they will look at data from five carbon capture projects to see how effective as a tool they can be. Uh, and these projects are all within a natural setting. So they range from things like tree planting to peatland regeneration and spreading rock dust over farmland. I think that's one that perhaps people will be less familiar with. Uh, and these trials will see how much CO2 different projects could store and therefore prevent from being released into the atmosphere. So fascinating. Um, And Katerina, I'm very pleased to say that we are going to make our first foray into (laughs) royal news. (laughs) I know, we should be wearing hats for the occasion, don't you think? Or crowns. Uh, Of course it is. (laughs) Oh, crowns. Oh, yes, even better. Uh, But yes, of course, it's all in the name of climate change. Uh, The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, that's Prince William and Kate, as they're often known, uh, visited the Orkney Islands off the coast of Scotland earlier this week. Um, Now, in energy terms, it's quite a remarkable place because because there is enough wind power generated there to provide all the energy the islands need with even some to spare. And it's also home to the European Marine Energy Centre, uh, which looks at how tidal and marine power could help lead the way in renewable energy. So for renewable energy enthusiasts, it's a trip to Walkney on the cards next, I think, Anna. What do you think? We can add it to our ever-growing list. I know, we have got a visit. lot. Because we've barely left our front rooms, we do have a very long list. But no, I'd be fascinated to go to the Orkney Islands I really would and uh, yeah not least because of um, all of that wind energy and the rest so that's it I think for this week's uh, Sky News Climate Cast uh, produced this week by Emma Ray Woodhouse and Chris Scott do remember to like rate and most importantly subscribe so you never miss one of our episodes and don't forget you can get uh, climate news every weekday on the daily climate show with me anna jones and you can catch me katarina vitozzi every week around 5 p.m on our instagram live times may vary depending on ability to press the buttons (laughs) were you late this week is that what you're saying (laughs) oh no i was actually seven hours early it was very confusing (laughs) obviously had a big night the night before anyway go and have your lie down Thank you. We're done. See you next, See you next time. time. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. On the new podcast, The Turning, The Sisters Who Left. We take a deep look behind the walls of the religious order founded by Mother Teresa, finding a culture of charity and prayer, suffering and forbidden love, abuse and betrayal. If you feel God is asking you to do something, it doesn't matter how hard it is. If you make a lifelong vow, what does it mean to break it? She said, don't let them take your brain away. It's very dangerous. Listen to The Turning, The Sisters Who Left on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Me, 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 but also you. 
The Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man. That's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry. I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool. Only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Johnny Ken Show, John Cobell and Ken Shampoo, KFI AM640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome, everybody. Hey, we'll be talking about Vax for the win. Governor Dippity Doo, under a recall, is handing out more money. And this is uh, to incentivize people to be vaccinated. It's a lottery. We'll explain all about that coming up later on this hour. Yesterday, we talked about a story in the National Review about the experiences in Austin, Texas, with the homeless problem. Back in 2019, they actually passed a pro-camping ordinance. It took effect that made unregulated open public camping lawful in nearly all public spaces in Austin. The consequences were profound immediately. Homeless shelters emptied, homeless individuals began traveling to Austin, Major intersections had large encampments form, and even a place called Town Lake, among the most beautiful and cherished areas of our city, became overrun with tents and makeshift encampments. Now, Austin's, up to that point, was a beautiful city. The, the tech industry was growing rapidly. They have the University of Texas. You know, they have uh, big music festivals there, restaurants, nightlife. I mean, it was a happening, booming, uh, one, like one of, one of the new cities that was expanding in uh, in the South and West where people were moving to in great numbers. And as they're enjoying this, this surge, they decide to shoot themselves in the head with a public camping ordinance, and suddenly the place is turned all disgusting and filthy. The estimate is the homeless population over the past two years doubled from 2,500 to 5,000. Now, it's a very liberal city. The Republican uh, registration rate's 21%. But this group called Save Austin Now actually engineered a, uh, a ballot initiative and by 58 to 42 repealed the public camping ordinance. And, right. They uh, went back to the council and the council had no interest in reversing the ordinance. So they took it to the voters. So let's get to Ken Cassidy on director of Save Austin Now. Out of Austin, Texas, also president of the Austin Police Association. Ken, welcome. Thank you, guys, for having me on. What motivated the council to come up with a pro-camping ordinance inviting the whole country's homeless into town? You know, we have no idea why they did it. We just know that they were told not to do it. Myself, uh, Chief Manley at the time, and someone that you guys will know in L.A., Officer Dion Joseph from LAPD testified at our city council and told them don't do it and told them lessons learned from Skid Row in Los Angeles. And yet they, they continued and, and made that poor decision, which we're now in the process of uh, changing. And describe what became of the public space in Austin. Like what, what was it uh, like now dealing with, with you know, thousands of new homeless people it, moving in? Sure. It went from, uh, you talked about Town Lake, it's now Lady Bird Lake, um, and it is one of the most beautiful areas of Austin. 
and very um, unfortunately, uh, they've taken over the lake. Uh, they've taken over intersections in the city of Austin, and um, uh, it's just a, a really, really bad situation. Did Did you have a situation there where people are supposed to go out and offer the homeless, you know, shelter space, help for drug or alcohol problems? Did anybody try to do that? Uh, no one's tried to do that. They believe in providing these individuals with permanent housing, which is not a bad idea, but when you really think about it, these individuals don't want permanent housing. You know, they're living on, on the uh, ocean side out there in California. Uh, they would much rather uh, just live out there with no rules, be able to drink alcohol and do drugs all day than uh, accept permanent housing because they in no way want to go work and pay for it. So um, that's been a disastrous idea. Uh, San Antonio, which is south of here, has what they call Haven of Hope. That's a very large facility. I think it cost about $200 million to build. But they have services, uh, job training, uh, medical facilities to take care of the homeless there. And uh, you don't see the same problems in San Antonio. So uh, you know, I'm not sure what the magic bullet is, but uh, you know, we're just trying to do the best we can do. And, and you know, a lot of our funding came from very wealthy individuals that moved from San Francisco and Los Angeles that said, we've had enough with this. I'm not going to drag my business from California to Texas and put up with the same crap. And uh, that's where a lot of the funding uh, to pass this proposition came well, from. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you next. How, how does this work now in terms of has this been carried out yet, this ballot measure? It has not been carried out. Uh, the police department has uh, put a plan forward uh, on education of the homeless. And in late July, they'll start citing and in August, they'll start moving individuals uh, to individual encampments selected by the city uh, uh, in different uh, council members' districts. Uh, so it's not going to be totally gone, but, you know, camping and living on the sidewalks, living on lakeside, uh, pitching your tent in the most valuable property in the city, that, that's going to be gone. I just and, I, uh, I, I don't so, understand why these city council members – they're enjoying this this great renaissance in Austin. Everything seems to be going well. Why would they invite thousands of people to to destroy all the public space? And and, and now they're stuck with a lot of them. I, 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 I'm just astonished. What did they think was going to happen? You know, that's that. I'm sorry. You know, I know there are lots of liberal folks in Los Angeles, but that's that far left liberal mindset on live and let live and let people do what they want to. And uh, it's just not flying here anymore. You know, we had Republicans come together with Democrats and, and uh, independent individuals, uh, people that love the community that said no more. Uh, we're not going to tolerate this type of behavior. Uh, and that's what needs to happen in Los Angeles and these other cities is your, your citizens need to take action uh, and force these council members to do the right thing, which is to make Los Angeles and Austin a safe place to live. Well, you the were one a- thing that stood out, uh, by the way, reading this National Review piece by the co-founders of Save Austin Now, they said, and you can tell me whether or not this was true, Ken, that the homeless shelters emptied out after the camping ordinance passed. That tells you that they would reject shelter to live in the streets under their own, uh, without any rules. Absolutely. You know, the, the police officers are the people that deal with these individuals every day. And, you know, we're going through this hate the police right now, you know, dismantle the police. Uh, you know, cops have been asked to do too much. 
But still to this day, they're still asking for us to deal with every social ill out there. And, uh, you know, we're out there dealing with it. We know the truth, which is there are some people out there that are truly homeless and down on their luck. But most of these individuals are either mentally ill or drug addicts uh, that just want a place to, to, to pitch a tent and not have to live by society's rules. Has anybody, city council, anybody in government said we were wrong? Uh, the mayor has uh, recognized that they made a huge mistake. Uh, he's just still looking for a way out. That's not our way of doing things. But he, uh, as of yesterday, was on Joe Rogan and uh, blamed 100% of it on the city manager. We have a city manager form of government here. And, uh, you know, our city manager is not perfect, but he didn't make the decision uh, to allow the homeless to run wild here in Austin. And uh, that's a coward's way out as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's what most now, of these guys are. We don't have an actual pro-camping ordinance here in L.A., but the problem is we don't have any enforcement of anything. So if people camp like they're doing in the beach at Venice, the city doesn't do anything about it. Do you have any advice for people out here? You know, uh, listen to Dion Joseph. Uh, you're, you know, he's an expert uh, in the homeless issue there on Skid Row. He has ideas. Uh, you know, the uh, you know Los Angeles has a lot of money, and a lot of people have a lot of money, and they need to put that to uh, a good purpose and do the same thing we did. You know, we'd be uh, we've already been asked to come to different cities to explain how we did what we did, and uh, it's a very easy process. It just takes time and money, and uh, people that think differently, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, to come together as one to agree on one issue and make it happen, and it can be done. Ken Cassidy, thanks for coming on with us. Good work. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Director right. of uh, Save Austin Now in Austin, Texas, president of the Austin Police Association, and his group got a pro-camping ordinance repealed. Yeah, I like the way they describe this group. They deal with quality of life issues impacting Austinites that are not being addressed by city council. Sound familiar for people in L.A. and like in Mike Bonin's council district? Sometimes you got to take back the mantle. And, of course, we talked earlier in the show with the representative behind Recall Bonin 2021com and they're trying to make action on that front. we got more coming up. Johnny Ken, KFI. Johnny Ken Show, John Cobell and Ken Shampoo, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. All right, we'll tell you about the exciting news today. Vax for the win, Governor Dippity Doo made an appearance here in L.A. County to announce California's new vaccine lottery program. And if you've already been vaccinated, you're still in the database. You could win. Uh, this is going to be exciting, huh? Yeah. Million and a half dollars. I know. You were angry the first 10 minutes we talked about it because you thought it was going to exclude people who have already been vaccinated, and then you changed your tune. The way it was presented, it seemed like it was an incentive for people to get the vaccine. Well, and it I, is, I, so they I, can be in the base, and there's a couple of other prizes for people that... Uh, and I thought, well, wait a second. People who got the vaccine did the right thing. We brought down the number of cases collectively. We uh, pushed the state close to herd immunity. We should be included in the lottery winnings. Minutes later, we found out Newsom had just announced it while we were complaining. They slipped him a note, said you better include the already vaccinated. Uh, we were just talking to a representative from an Austin organization 
trying to deal with the homeless problem down there. It turned out he is uh, the head of the police union in Austin. You heard him mention a little bit about, you know, the defund the police movement. I don't know if you uh, heard this story, but an Atlanta city councilman who wants to be the next mayor of that city and who voted to defund the police tens of millions of dollars had his car stolen by children in broad daylight yesterday. Children. I mean, little children. They were like, like seven to ten years old. Yeah, yeah. There were a couple of seven-year-olds in there. He was attending a ribbon-cutting ceremony, <clears throat> and four kids jumped into his car and took off. What, he leave he the said, keys? I in? don't think these kids are really going to steal my car, are they? He said he couldn't believe it. There's a photo of this dope standing with the police. You know, oh, yeah? Because they, yeah, because they came to help him. Last year, he voted in support of an ordinance to withhold $73 million from the budget of the Atlanta Police Department, but that ordinance was narrowly voted down. He, uh, it was a nice white Mercedes-Benz coupe. It's got the keyless push-to-start ignition, but I still, you still have to have like the key fob on you because I have, a, I have a keyless push-start ignition, so you have to have that thing on you, though. For the, he must have left it in the car, the little fob. The little, yeah, he probably did. Yeah. Because you, you, you're supposed to be right in front of the steering wheel for it to detect. Mm. Uh, one kid was in the driver's seat. Uh, he says that he, uh, he was there with a community leader named Ben Norman, and Ben tried to open the door to get him out of the car, and he fought with Ben. I then got involved, tried to get him out of the car. The three other kids were trying to figure out how to get in the car or stay out of the car. And then the kid behind the wheel started to hit the gas. And apparently Brown got dragged a block down the road before letting go. <laughs> he says, as he started to speed up, I knew I had to let go. <laughs> was he yelling, police, police, as he was getting dragged? And now the kicker. He wants no charges against the kids. They acted out of generational poverty issues. No, they're little children with very bad character, and uh, they're going to end up in jail in a few years. He says, you, oh, it's 12.30 in the afternoon. Why weren't they in school? Why are we enforcing systems to ensure that if they are not in school, that they're in rec centers? That was his response to this. Rec center. What an idiot. These people are really have the lowest intelligence. Yeah. All these progressive nut jobs. I, I, got, I like the photo of him with the two cops, though. And the cops are yes. probably looking at this guy like, you stupid... Um, this guy, Antonio oh, oh, Brown, oh. is actually under federal indictment. Oh, I just so. saw that. Yeah. Fraud it's charges. A, oh, for goodness sake. He's a crook. And by the way, homicides in Atlanta are up at least 52% from this time last year. Shootings have increased more than 40%. Right. And by the way, that's what our local politicians like to say. Oh, it's not just an L.A. problem. It's happening in cities all around the country. All the cities did the same thing. They yeah. all got the woke disease. They all defunded or tried to defund the police. They all told the police to pull back. Mm -hmm. They're all not enforcing the laws that they used to enforce. Now they have a big crime wave, and they're blaming it on structural racism and poverty and all this other stuff. And meantime, this guy, this guy's indicted for Oh, yeah, fraud? here it is. Prosecutors said the councilman lied about his income on applications to obtain loans and credit cards used for personal purchases. Oh, All of the alleged a... incidents occurred before he won his council seat in 2019. But he's trying to become mayor now. I guess you can still run for mayor even if you're under indictment. I... He'll probably get voted in. All this stuff is failed. And he uses your favorite word, John, in the story. 
we need to reimagine public safety. Well, they did. They <laughs> yeah. destroyed it. It now not it now it doesn't exist. Yeah, I, I'm not Where hearing is... a lot about you know the cities. You don't hear a lot. Medium sized, smaller cities around the country seeing crime waves. We're only hearing about it in places like New York, Chicago, with the woke Atlanta, Los sure. Angeles. It's all the woke old males. I just I'm just fascinated how quickly. They all started singing the same tune, using the same woke hole buzzwords, the same bizarre concepts, the same failures, the same lame defenses of their failures. None of this existed two or three years ago. All right. When we come back, ah, the vaccine lottery comes to California, copying ideas that other states have already adopted Governor Dippity Do made an appearance today to spend more money. Coming up next. John and Ken, KFI. Part of the John and Ken Show. John Cobell and Ken Shampoo. It's KFI. AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. All right. Well, in case you missed the very exciting news, which pretty much opened our show today, Governor Dippity Do came to L.A. County to announce a contest. The recall giveaway continues. <laughs> Vax for the win. This stupid. Catchy? No, it's dumb. V-A-X. How come certain words, when people abbreviate them, they put an X? I mean, there's no X in the word vaccine. No. Uh, I, I don't know why. This became very uh, prevalent in, in recent years. People can't pronounce long words anymore they don't have the patience well i think they're lazy when it comes to texting so they abbreviate everything yeah so then they talk in text speak i got one guy just one friend who will text me and he uses just the letters i I don't know what the hell it is sometimes i know i know i feel really ignorant it's a lot well no you're you're not ignorant he's ignorant it's not that hard to spell out the words but it's it's usually a collection of letters or acronyms or emojis or Oh, I don't know. It's, it's like we're trying to decode things. You know, if I can't figure something out, I ignore the message. I it's gave like, up uh, an OMG. Speak to me in English. All right. So here it is. It's a multifaceted vaccine incentive program. Doesn't that sound like Newsom? <laughs> Why do they do that? <laughs> multifaceted. Uh, here's the deal. All Californians age 12 plus who are at least partially vaccinated are automatically eligible for a cash prize drawing. And it's all going to happen in June. 30 winners in total will be selected for the $50,000 Friday cash prize drawing. They'll be held on June 4th and June 11th. That's a million and a half. But on June 15th, that's the day we can drop the masks and freely associate. Remember? (laughs) Full immersion? I don't know. I've been freely associating already. I know. One and a half million dollars are going to be awarded to 10 people. There's the 15 million. So 10 one and a half million dollar prizes. That's right. 10 one and a half million dollar prizes. Now, if you've already been vaccinated, you're already in there. You're in the database. So you will be eligible. This isn't just for people to get vaccinated now. However, beginning today, the next two million people who begin and complete their COVID-19 vaccination will automatically be eligible to receive a $50 prepaid or grocery card. Mm. There you go. Now, if that's his 50 exciting. bucks isn't going to go very far right now. No, you're right. You'd I think you, get, you'll uh, get a pound of ground beef for that. <laughs> 
Here is Governor Dippity Doo, part of his announcement this afternoon. On Friday, June 11th, the state of California will be uh, conducting a drawing. Everybody that has been vaccinated in the state of California will have their name put into this drawing. They are all eligible. And all of those of you before those dates that get vaccinated, I hope you're paying attention, you get yeah. the $50 uh, incentive card, and you have a chance to be in a drawing where we will be pulling the names of 15 individuals that will receive $50,000 cash prizes. We'll do that on the 14th, and again, 15 individuals, $50,000 said that on June 11th. Yeah, that's a all of that. It's the 4th and the 11th. The 14th, he said the 14th. On June 15th, we'll be distributing an additional $15 million. On June 15th, we are going to make available to 10 individuals Everybody yeah, that has been vaccinated in the state of California, with a few caveats, and I can talk through those caveats. No prisoners. But the vast majority of Californians <laughs> eligible no that have received a first dose, but they still uh, those get that seek to get a first dose before That's June right. 15th, you got the EDD $15 million so you don't get that the, uh, night will be distributed $1.5 million prizes yeah, you don't for get the 10 vaccine individuals. Lottery. So these are real incentives. But, these all right, are up. an stop, opportunity. Stop, stop. But we're going to play the next one where apparently a, a Univision reporter, let's make that clear, because when John first heard, heard this, he didn't get it. I thought it was an actual illegal immigrant. A Univision reporter is going to ask a question concerning uh, probably what he expects to be his viewers. Let's listen. If I'm undocumented and I become vaccinated, but I don't have a social security number, and I become the winner of this lottery, how do I claim or will have issues claiming that price. Yeah, we're working through those details, but this is eligible for all Californians, regardless of their immigration status, that got vaccinated with at least one vaccine. You'll be eligible. We have your information in our system. Uh, the exceptions include those at CDCR and incarcerated, those that were vaccinated but are not residents of the state of California, those like me. Uh, in the geo, what they call geo offices in the state of California. Right. Folks at the Department of Health. What's that? You've got to watch mine, folks, Department of Health. Uh, and then um, a number uh, of other uh, categories okay. uh, right. we included, uh, uh, not surprisingly. Stop! Stop! Uh, look at it. The El Segundo Times took a shot at him here, though, in the story. The total spending on this Vax for the Win program is $116.5 million. They point out that's very little out of the state's $268 billion budget, but it is three times as much as Newsom's budget proposes to spend on surge capacity for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection during this year's wildfire season, <laughs> and far more than his $3 million plan to study the needs of public health departments. So they want to do a little <laughs> dig there that... He's spending more well, money on yeah, vaccine but giveaways. He's, getting, like a, he's got a recall, so he's got to, he's got to bribe people. That's what yeah, this is. This is a big bribe. He's uh, giving out $116 million to make people feel uh, less likely to hate him. Uh, L.A. County stepped up. They've already been offering season tickets for the Lakers. Now they added the L.A. Kings and the L.A. Galaxy mm. to the prize pool. Uh, where are we in terms of, oh yeah, I did read that story earlier that we still have about 12 million people.
they say, that are eligible for a vaccine that haven't gone for one. Yeah, okay. 40 million people care. in the state, 12 million. I don't care about that. Don't really. No. But, you know, they claim that in Ohio, they got an increase of 45% in vaccinations after they started that lottery. So, oh, you can you can bribe. They think people. this will draw people. Oh yeah, no people's uh, people's uh, resistance to anything collapses if you offer them money. Yeah. Their principles evaporate. I wanted a scratcher. The average number of doses being administered statewide has dropped from a peak of four hundred thousand a day to down to two hundred thousand, and that's why they're. Uh... But we have administered thirty six point two million COVID nineteen vaccines. In the state. But remember, there's two doses for some of the nah. vaccines. So. I don't care what other people do. No, I Doesn't you've made that very me. clear. Doesn't matter It's to all me. about me. It's all about me. Other people, that's because it, it's a free choice, right? You're choosing now to put yourself at risk. So what do you want from me? Yeah. Everybody's always asking me for money, right? Because they make dumb choices in their life. This is going to be a whole other crowd. They're going to, some some point, they might get sick. And they're going to want something from me. Can you give we, me five bucks? We gave you a free vaccine. No, nothing for you. You have enough. What about me? Well, now, what do you need? I'll take Just a... Just for money. Yeah. $1,000? $1,000? $1,000. You got to get your hair done? <laughs> wow. Ooh, yeah. No, my hair doesn't cost a thousand dollars. Hair and nails, sorry. <laughs> okay. And add a facial in there. Sure, okay. We'll get to a thousand quick though. Uh, more coming up. John and Ken. More of the John and Ken show. John Covell and Ken Shampoo KF5. AM six forty live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. All right, I so I, I don't read Dear Prudence, do you? I, I, ha- I have that, seen that. You have it's a name that really never came back from its day, huh? Prudence? No. No, really you wouldn't name a girl prudence that's you're you're dooming her it's from the 1800s I, <laughs> but, but uh, the first five letters are prude so it, it's not gonna fly i guess this belongs to slate they have something called dear prudence it's an advice column yeah and the story is that a woman wrote into dear prudence and asked for help concerning her husband i've been married to a great guy for five and a half years He's handsome, sexy, funny, and kind. It's true that he's always been a little prissy about illnesses, but I never thought it was a real problem. She said during the pandemic, her husband's fears hit a fevered pitch. And since COVID-19's emergence in the U.S., he has flat out refused to take off his face mask, even when the two are home alone. He wears it to sleep to do most of his bathroom activities, and yes, even during lovemaking. <laughs> There's a turn on. Wait, so when he goes to the bathroom, and he's on the bowl, he's got the mask on? Yeah, well, there's the fumes, yeah. I get, but not in the shower, I hope. She's looking up at him, and he's doing his business. And, oh, man. To eat... He pulls it up to expose his mouth and quickly pulls it back down between bites. You know what? While he does not insist that I do the same, I can tell it bothers him that I don't, especially because I've now started going maskless outside. Uh Uh-oh. She's attempted to reason with him, but he says, scientists don't fully understand the virus yet. What's the harm? 
<laughs> the woman writes, I want to see my beautiful husband's face again. I want to kiss him on the lips romantically like we used to. Not through a piece of fabric. Oh, oh, this part is the worst. He does not change his mask very often, and it is often smelly and soiled. Yeah. Oh! Oh! Yeah, that's... Oh! This is making me depressed. I'm concerned oh. about our future together. What advice do you have? And a very long response followed. Back up and leave. But basically... He needs to see a mental health professional. Yeah, you think? <laughs> wow. Prudence uh, doesn't miss a trick, does she? Uh, in fact, uh, Prudence recommended the two sit down, have a heart-to-heart, talk yeah. over his decision to wear masks nearly 100% of the time. Oh, it's turned into a phobia. It's a paralyzing it, phobia. It is a paralyzing phobia. You're exactly right. And it does indicate probably other deeper mental health issues uh, interesting that a pandemic came along to really expose this guy huh uh, uh, give he, him three options first he can make an appointment with his doctor to talk about protective measures if he does this he has to commit to following the doctor's recommendations and i'm sure the doctor's not going to say well it, it, the thing is with... the thing is when you have a mental disorder he's going to get extremely anxious and upset when he takes off the mask he's going to be uh, belligerent he's going to be resentful towards his wife there's no mm. hope here. He, she should pack up and leave and uh, go to a divorce lawyer. There's no reeling him back in. And about his dopey comment that the doctors don't fully understand the virus, I was reminded of the opposite of this this morning. I was watching one of the news channels, and they were talking about the upcoming Memorial Day weekend and the beaches. And I was like, yeah, you're right. A year ago, they were trying to keep everybody off the beach. Right. Remember that paranoia? Because, yeah, yeah, and it is paranoia. We, we had to sit through like 15 months of mental illness. Mass mental illness, mass hysteria. That's what a lot of this has been. No, it was an abundance of caution. Don't you an, understand? An abundance of caution. The virus was new a year ago. It's a symptom of mental illness. Whenever you hear that phrase, that is somebody who's not wrapped too tight. <laughs> Speaking uh, of, uh, Wayne Resnick is here. Oh. Now, does that apply in any situation? What? Well, let's say I'm, a, an, I'm an apprentice alligator trainer. Would you say if I proceed with an abundance of caution, I'm mentally ill? Okay. There you go. All right. There's an exception. That's Thank the kind you. of stuff he comes hey, up with. Hey, listen, if these rumors are true, uh, we're all going to have to go through a mourning process of losing. You know, so they always say it's a tragedy when you lose somebody too soon. If these rumors are true, we're going to be losing Mayor Eric Garcetti yeah. to an ambassadorship. I'm heart sick. And uh, what's going to happen if that happens in terms of who's going to run this city? Well, uh, nobody's been running it for the last eight years, so, so we might not notice. <laughs> we any might difference. not notice anything. Also, uh, we're going to get a chance to vote on bringing sports betting to the state, and this is not something we're leading the nation, and in fact, we're trailing far behind. And uh, I don't know if you'll appreciate this. I know you like steak. Mm. There's a steakhouse that is causing a big flap doodle because of a sign that they put up in front of it. We will get into that. All right, sounds very promising. Wayne in for Tim Conway, and then we got Michael Crozier in the news, John and Ken, KFI, KOSD HD2, Los Angeles, Orange County, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? 
I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Whatever business you're in, growth isn't just about getting bigger. At ADP, we believe it's about getting stronger by turning data into insights so you can build teams that work as teams. By using our AI technology to help catch payroll errors before their errors. And by keeping ahead of thousands of changing regulations so you can keep ahead of everything else. ADP helps businesses like yours grow stronger every day. ADP, HR talent, time, and payroll. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. As we've seen over the past year, life is fragile, of course, and things can change quickly. So it makes sense why people get life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. So why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, well, choose Ladder. Ladder makes it impressively fast and easy to get covered. You just need a few minutes and a phone or a laptop to apply. Their smart algorithm works in real time. So you find out instantly if you're approved. There are no hidden fees and you can cancel at any time. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to ladderlife.com slash SPI. Again, that's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash SPI ladderlife.com slash SPI. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he actually starts crying when he sings a sad song on pitch. Pat Flynn. So this past week, we spoke with PJ from the Jonas family, she is a mother of eight children, and her husband, Jim, and her kids, Brett, Coulter, Emery, Fletcher, Graydon, Hewitt, Indigo, and Jade, they run a business, a family business, called Goat Milk Stuff. And if you haven't heard this episode, I highly, highly recommend it, because it is one of the most wholesome and incredible success stories that has a lot of sacrifice in the beginning, and where they're at now, it's just incredible, and honestly, my wife, April, and I cannot stop talking about their business. And I'm not paid to say this, goatmilkstuff.com, legit products for sure. And yeah, it does come from goats. So anyway, more of that story in episode 487. But I wanted to talk today to you in this follow-up Friday episode because the conversation with PJ reminded me of another conversation I had with another guest or actually another couple who had come on the show at one point and I remember, and I just had the same feelings that I had after interviewing PJ, that I had after interviewing Shane and Jocelyn Sams, where I knew that if people heard this story, it would inspire, it would motivate, and I knew that it was gonna, gonna get out there. And even though this episode just published this past week, I know it's gonna be one that people are gonna share. I know it's gonna be one that people are gonna talk about. And like episode 122 with Shane and Jocelyn Sams, 400 episodes later, still, people are talking about it. And it's incredible, it's that much of an impact. I have those same feelings. And so to give you some perspective, I actually wanted to play a clip from that episode with Shane and Jocelyn. They were two teachers from Kentucky who had discovered the show, had taken action, and had gotten some incredible results. And I wanted to play the minute, around the seven minute mark, where Shane starts talking about his experience having found this podcast, 
Smart Passive Income podcast and the storytelling from there. And I have some lessons to share about that. But let's go back in time to episode 122 with Shane and Jocelyn. This is Shane talking about the infamous lawnmower story. Here it is. So it was just totally random that I even stumbled across your podcast. So anyway, I get on the lawnmower, man. I'm driving around, just cutting my grass, listening to you talk about, you know, passive income and just about online business. And it was, I don't remember exactly what episode it was, but you were talking about the Green Exam Academy stuff, like how you basically made this study guide, you know, for people taking this architecture test. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. You mean people are paying you to send them an email? And I was always like, Jocelyn always laughed at me because I would like drive around and like just say crazy stuff in the car. But, you know. Yeah, he would always say like, if I could just get 50 people to give me $100. That would be so much money. <laughs> and if I could, and it would be just, I wouldn't have to work for it if they would just send it to me, you know, like, so, and like when I was listening to your show, man, I was like, this is it. This is how I'm going to get 50 people to send me $100. So I jumped, I literally, man, I was in the middle of the yard, turned the lawnmower off jumped off my lawnmower and ran inside. I bust into the kitchen and Jocelyn's just standing there. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little excitable. I get a little fired up like some of the time. Just a little. So, <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm, I'm really like, I'm rolling in, man, like we just won a football game. I said, Jocelyn, you've got to listen to this. This is our destiny. We're going to change our lives. This guy, Pat Flynn's talking about making money online and passive income. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds great. And like, and I'm just so fired up and I'm like, let's do it. All right, I just love listening to that story, and I and, and it was told uh, at FlynnCon on stage in 2019. Shane and Jocelyn came up on stage; they were two of my special guests at FlynnCon, and it's just always great to hear that because it reminds me of who might be listening, and you never know who's listening. So there's a couple lessons to come out of this. Number one, you never know who might be listening. They might have a story that needs your help. And they need you to be a part of that story. They need you to be the guide in that story. And I had apparently become the guide for Shane and Jocelyn. Several people had heard this story and they have become the guide for them since then. And I know PJ and the Jonas family and the goat milk stuff story is going to be a guide and it's going to light a fire for many people. I know, especially those who might be struggling because PJ talked a lot about the sacrifices they had to make and how they were just living off of you know, bread for a while to to make ends meet and make things work. And now they're just exploding and doing extremely well, which is really, really cool. I mean, perseverance is a part of the equation here uh, to perseverance and grit for sure. But more than that, if you do any sort of interviewing, if you have a podcast or a YouTube channel, especially any sort of multimedia, and this could mean social media as well, you got to tell stories. Stories are the most powerful form of connection. We are, as human beings, programmed from birth, essentially, to listen to stories. When we are little infants, our parents are reading us stories. When we're in school, stories are being read to us. When we're sitting at the movie theater, what are we watching? We're watching a story, and stories are everywhere. And stories are an easy way to teach, to provide context, to create relatable experiences, or to paint a picture for what a future might look like for somebody. And I didn't know it at the time in episode 122, but Shane was just such a great guest as well as Jocelyn in the way that they told stories. And I was very fortunate because it could have simply been just a question and answer session, but I'm very grateful for them because they told great stories. And so now in the future, or here we are, I try like with the episode in PJ to pull out the story as much as possible. And PJ was also very generous with storytelling and giving us an insight on what it might be like to live 
on the goat farm and what it might have been like as the kids were young and now they're a lot older and you know more additional family members are coming into play and kids are getting married and having grandkids it's just it's just incredible i really do feel like i was there with them and i resonate with that i connect and connection is key here online so tell more stories and get more stories out of those who you're interviewing i'd once heard from alex bloomberg the top strategy for getting a story out of somebody. It's very simple. You simply just ask this question, or you tee it up, in fact. You say, tell me about a time when blank. It's not a question, it's a blank. But this allows for the person who you're speaking to to have permission to literally just go and tell the story. And then your job is just to listen. And that's a hard thing to do as well, because especially us podcasters, we wanna poke in and, and, and comment and you know, go different directions. But if a person's telling a story, keep the story going. If a person ends the story because they're being conscious about how much they're speaking, they don't wanna be rude. If you as the listener or representative of the audience feel like there's maybe more to it than what was shared, then you gotta go dig for it. Well, what happened next? Or how did you feel in that moment? Or what do you wish you had done differently? or what happened next, or just simply asking this very, very famous question, why, 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 why? That was from a meme, if, in case you didn't know. But it's also from a bunch of kids who say why all the time so much that it annoys us adults sometimes. But it's interesting because what is a kid actually doing when he's asking why, or she's asking why? They're curious. They wanna know what's going on. So if you want to be a great interviewer, if you want to get stories like the story with Shane and Jocelyn, if you want to get the stories like the stories with PJ and goat milk stuff, keep asking why and what happened and what happened next. So hopefully this encourages you to take your interview game just a little bit further because I know you can go deeper. And I know on the surface it might feel like a little bit rude or that maybe it's none of your business, but for the sake of your audience, and for the sake of actually creating content, valuable content at that, and for the sake of having this person realize that this isn't, isn't just like the normal interview they would do that they can get anywhere. This is a unique one because you go deep. So go deep if you can and pull out that gold and that'll create the connections. And I hope that if you have not listened to the episode with PJ yet, you go and do that because it is incredible, absolutely incredible. And Shane and Jocelyn Sams, again, two of my favorite people in the world. Thank you so much for continuing that ripple effect as we all are a part of and we've all experienced. So thank you so much for this follow-up Friday episode. I hope this encourages you. I appreciate you. And I look forward to serving you in next week's interview and follow-up Friday. Peace out. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Sound design and editing by Paul Gregoris. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today... I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point. So I love that we're just facing it head on here. 
And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray. And in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it. Now, if you're hoping to generate an income online and you haven't really taken the time to learn affiliate marketing, then you're probably leaving money on the table. In fact, I know that. So affiliate marketing, it's time-tested income generation with two powerful benefits. It allows you to maintain and strengthen your audience's hard-won trust in your brand with no need to invest time and energy to create your own products. You can recommend others. Sadly, it's easy to do affiliate marketing the wrong way by putting money before your audience's need and trust and damaging that relationship in the process. We don't want to do that. And that's why I created 123 Affiliate Marketing. With 123 Affiliate Marketing, I'll give you all the tools you need to win by promoting products that already exist in the market you're in. And I'll show you how to do it the right way so your audience wins too. And so you don't come across as sleazy, which can sometimes happen. You'll learn how to choose the right products to promote, the ones that your audience is gonna wanna use, and how to stay legal, make sure you're following all the things that you need to do, and so much more. So it's your one-stop shop to become an affiliate marketing powerhouse. Again, that's 123 Affiliate Marketing. So if you're ready to sign up today for 123 Affiliate Marketing and get $120 off the retail price, plus two bonus workshops, click and convert, where you're gonna learn how to write headlines and stuff, plus cash flow fundamentals so you know how to price your stuff, well, all you have to do is visit smartpassiveincome.com slash 123AM. That's for affiliate marketing. And register before June 1st, 9 p.m. Pacific. Time to get your discounts and bonuses. Go to smartpassiveincome.com slash 123AM. And if you still are hearing this ad, that means it's still available, but it's gonna go away very soon. So act now. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Warrior events, Gold Star Family Recognition, and the Joining Forces Initiative, she has been a devoted advocate to those who serve and have served. It is now my sincere honor to now welcome First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden. Ma'am, it's a pleasure to see you again, and the stage is yours. Thank you, Colonel Ross. And Clint, it's so wonderful to see you again. You know, when our paths last crossed, as Clint said, you were serving in the White House military office and the Obama-Biden administration was just getting started. And you were an invaluable resource to my team as we worked to serve the military community through our Joining Forces initiative. And you know, I remember how sweet Claire was when you, um, when you brought her to take your daughter to work day. 
So I'm truly grateful for everything that you did to support us back then and for you and your family's continued service today. So good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be back in Norfolk here at Langley Eustis for, and for the, with those who have given so much for our country, our airmen and our soldiers and those who love them. The families of our service members and veterans, the caregivers who lift up our wounded, our ill and our injured, the survivors who grieve those we've lost. You may not wear a uniform, but military families are as critical to our national defense as a rudder is to a ship. You support your service member no matter where they are. You sacrifice your safety uh, with every move in PCS, with every new school or job. You serve alongside your loved ones. We have an all-volunteer force, and it continues only because generations of Americans see the honor, dignity, and patriotism of military service. How can we hope to keep our military strong if our service members are forced to choose between their love of country and their love of family? That's why supporting your physical, social, and emotional health is a national security imperative. Your Commander-in-Chief and I understand that. This is personal to us. And as we begin Memorial Day weekend with a community who feels its gravity deeply, our hearts are with all the survivors, remembering and celebrating someone they love. We owe them a debt we can never repay and we must do everything we can to help them carry the weight of their grief and always, always honor their service. 10 years ago, First Lady Michelle Obama and I created Joining Forces, and this work continues to be one of my top priorities today. We are going to make sure that our military and veteran families, caregivers and survivors have what they, what you need to survive. Our military is a community bound together by love. Love for our country, love for the men and women who serve beside you or the service members in your life. And love for the communities that you all have built together. It's time that our nation matches that devotion. May God bless you all, our troops and their families. And now I'm excited to welcome our next speaker, Brittany Bean. In addition to being a mom of three, a veteran herself and a fellow teacher, Brittany has navigated much of this pandemic while her husband, Major Nathaniel Bean, is deployed to Afghanistan. With Brittany's service, this is their family's seventh combined deployment. Brittany, like so many moms, I know that you are the rock of your family. And that's especially true when you're parenting 
with a deployed partner. I want to thank you and your children, Jordan Nathan and Margaret Catherine, for your strength, resilience, and everything you do every day to keep us safe. Brittany? Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. I am Brittany Bean, and these are my well-behaved, yay, and adorable <laughs> children, Margaret Catherine, Nathan, and Jordan. My husband, Major Bean, is overseas in Afghanistan. He has been gone for six months, and he will return in about six more months, about in time for Christmas. On this Memorial Day, we are asked to honor, remember, and mourn those airmen, servicemen, and women who have paid the ultimate sacrifice in the performance of their duties home and abroad. As a veteran myself and spouse to a service member currently serving overseas, I am all too aware of the cost these young men and women are asked to bear, as is President Biden, who has suffered a loss of his own. Some of you listening to my voice right now have also suffered a loss. I'd like to extend my external and internal gratitude, however willing to protect the American dream, to keep our nation a beacon of democracy and hope to others. It comes with a great sense of honor and pride. Though I've taken off the uniform and have transitioned to being a military spouse, I am still afforded an opportunity to serve others as an educator at Pocosin Elementary School. Go Bulls! <laughs> Thanks to programs like the CARES Act, However, as most educators know, not all lessons are retained to the confines of the classroom. Our three children have benefited immensely from the range of interpersonal relationships they have formed over the years as military children. Our children have lived abroad in the Middle East, traveled all across Europe and the United States. They have had the opportunity to meet families from walks of life and many socio-political backgrounds. The military is a global community, a unified community, and one that I am proud to have served and continue to serve. With that, I would like to welcome President Biden to Joint Base Langley-Eustis and the Hampton Roads region. But first, when you were elected, my husband said I got to shake the hand of the president. You gave his commissioning speech at the 2009 Air Force Academy graduation. And I said, I actually get to shake the president's hand. I win, don't you agree? <laughs> Thank you. How'd you guys get comfortable? <laughs> Colonel Ross, it's wonderful to see you again. Thank you. When our past last cross, as Jill said, you were serving uh, in the White House. And uh, I never thought we'd be standing here today doing what we're doing today. And Chief Master Sergeant Peterson, thank you and, and to all members of your team who helped put this visit together today. It, uh, it means a lot to Jill and me. Uh, when I was Vice President and uh, 
as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. We uh, tried to visit almost every major military base in the country and as vice president around the world. And uh, you are simply stated, you are the backbone of the country. You're the backbone of the country. And uh, although our son, Bo, was the attorney general of the state of Delaware and uh, had spent uh, nine months in Kosovo uh, trying to, uh, as assistant U.S. attorney, trying to set up their criminal justice system. Uh, and uh, I might say, I've, I can do this with the military. Um, I'm going to brag about him a little bit. He's the only foreigner to have a war memorial erected to him in Kosovo, just below Fort Bonsteel, and, uh, and the highway, the first highway they built, named after him the Joseph R. Bo Biden Memorial Highway. And, uh, and he, was, uh, he was proud of hell, hell of his work. But then he decided that I kept on — he had contracted a exposure to a, a virus in — when he was in Kosovo and in Turkey as a civilian, and uh, he came back with a problem. But he kept going to Walter Reed. I couldn't understand why. He was — they finally found — it's called ankylosing spondylitis. They finally found a cure prevented him from having what they call bamboo spine. But he kept going back. I couldn't understand why. I thought I knew why. But Gov, he went back because he was trying to get an exemption to be able to join the United States Army. He was a sitting attorney general, and was all my colleagues, the governor and Bobby Scott and Congresswoman, they all know, is that uh, uh, when you do that, he joined the National Guard. And his unit deployed, and he wanted to deploy to Iraq with them. So he literally had to give up his seat temporarily. He could not have any business done, as you National Guard folks know. You can't do any business with the state if, in fact, you're now federal property. And so he gave up the seat and had the uh, courage to uh, appoint the fellow who had been the Republican Attorney General as Attorney General while he uh, — while he went. The proudest thing he ever did. Proudest thing he ever did. And uh, he uh, — he spent a year in Iraq. And uh, it was uh, — it was one of the great honors of his life to do it. Won the Bronze Star, the Conspicuous Service Medal, and other awards, like many of you have. But he never, ever talked about it. I remember we had an event at the White House. I shouldn't be talking so much about my son, but I'm not going to apologize for it. We had an event for Iraqi veterans at the White House. And the President, without telling me or Jill, invited Bo to be there with another 75 soldiers and sailors and airmen. But he wouldn't wear any of his decorations. And General Ordiano called him, he served under him, and said, put them on now. I swear to God, walking out of the VP residence, he wouldn't put them on until then. That's the first time I ever saw the Bronze Star on him. What I'm telling you that is, is like a lot of you. You do your duty. You don't expect anything for it except be a little, have, get a little respect. 
It deserves so much more. It deserves so much more. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm honored to be joined today by Governor Northam and by two great representatives of the Commonwealth, Congressman Laurie and Congressman Scott. And I want to thank, uh, thank you for all that you do to represent these service veterans, because they're devoted to you. The family members, the caregivers, survivors will call Virginia home. I'm especially honored to share the stage with Brittany and Jordan and Nathan and Margaret Catherine. I, uh, I love those barrettes in her hair, man. I tell you what, and look at her. She looks like she's 19 years old sitting there with her, like a little lady in her legs caught. Brittany, you're doing triple duty as a veteran, a military spouse, and a teacher. And kids, thank you for being there for your mom. I can remember all those times, and all of you remember the spouses when your husband or wife are deployed. Every morning you wake up, you say that little extra prayer while you're drinking your coffee. You just spend a little more time wondering. And, uh, you know, you make up 1% of the population. You're defending 99% of the rest of us. And we owe you. But you do your job so gracefully, you hardly ever say anything about what you're doing. But it matters. It matters to your families for that time we're sitting across from an empty chair at the kitchen table, on the dining room table, for those birthdays or Christmases or holidays where they're gone. You know, there's a famous English poet who said, they also serve who only stand and wait. Also serve, only stand and wait. I know uh, Major Bean, having been deployed to Afghanistan during the pandemic, has only made everything much harder during the pandemic. I want to thank you so much, your entire family, service to our country. You're all incredible. You so underestimate how important you are. There's nothing that Jill and I enjoy more than spending time with our troops here and abroad. We're stationed here in the United States or deployed around the world. I've been in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan over 20, I think, 25 times. And I've seen, I wish everyone could see what you do when you're there. I wish they could see every day how you saddle up, how you jump in that cockpit. Just see. No, you're just, just doing your job. Not to mention all the troops I've had a chance to visit in the Middle East and Europe and the Indo-Pacific region. We've traveled all over. Jill's traveled all over with me on her own visits to service members in Iraq. I think she's the only second lady ever to go into the middle of a war zone because she wanted to be there and see it. I always want you to know, always, that the issues you and your family are facing, we need to know how we can support you better. I mean it sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, support you better. There's a reason for that. As I said, we Bidens are proud to have family and military. And our son Bo's service was uh, was among the achievements, uh, as I said, he was most proud of. My heart swelled, seeming uniform. 
When I went into Iraq, I was there five uh, times when he was uh, in Baghdad. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I remember the first time I saw him, his name was Hunter. So what in the hell happened? He said, Dad, I don't want anybody to give me any special favors because my vice president's my dad. He got permission to put a different name tag on it. I also remember what it was like to listen to him talk about the needs that people had when he got back home. About all the folks he served with who came back with post-traumatic stress. And he was back being attorney general and having to deal with it. But here's the point. You do so much and you ask for so little. You know, our experience is a fraction of what so many of you and your families have gone through. Family like Brittany and her kids. You're an absolute best America has to offer. Our heart, our honor, your solid steel spine. So my message to all of you is quite simple. Thank you. Thank you. Not thank you for your service, just thank you for who you are, because it's contagious. Thank you for choosing a selfless service to your country. I know we have mostly soldiers and airmen in attendance today, but there can be a lot of friendly rivalries on the base. Each branch has its own proud, cherished traditions and culture. I know how proud Langley is of the premier fifth-generation F-22 Raptor wing. Oh, God, I'd love to go up in one of those. I asked, I'm your commander-in-chief. Why the hell can't I command you to let me go up with you? But I, you know, they won't let me do that. But if Fort Eustis hosts one of Army's busiest airfields, which is led by the Air Force, primarily used by the Navy, <laughs> it's all about as joint as it can possibly get. Every day, the more than 20,000 members of the Air Force and Army, along with civilian personnel, come to work with a shared mission. No matter which branch of our armed forces you proudly represent, you're part of the greatest fighting force in the history of the world. That's not hyperbole. The greatest fighting force in the history of the world. You're integral to the most powerful nation in the world. There's been no Army, Navy, Air Force ever like you, or Marines. Here at Joint Base Langley-Eustis, you enable the success of our mission around the world. You provide intelligence support and air power. You ensure our soldiers and airmen are, uh, are ready, trained to deploy the COCOMs around the world. Including this year, adhering to COVID-19 safety protocols and quarantines before troops ship out in order to minimize the spread of the virus. Know that many of you deployed yourselves, probably more than once. Over the past 20 years, our volunteer force and our military families have made incredible sacrifices for this country. Early in my term as vice president, when I traveled overseas, I'd sometimes meet servicemen and women who were deployed their fourth, fifth, sixth times. Remember going into Baghdad, remember, and those of you who had to fly in, we do those circular deals so we wouldn't get shot at and we wouldn't get hit. I walked up in the cockpit of a silver bullet that they had me in. And I asked, I said, how many, there were five people in the cockpit at the time, loadmaster as well. I said, how many is this your first tour? 
Nobody raised their hand. How many the second tour? Nobody raised their hand. Third tour, two raised their hand. Fourth tour, two raised their hand. Fifth tour, one raised their hand. No other war have you gone in, served, and got back up again and go back again and again and again. Once, once, wiping the blood off a seat and up armor Humvee is enough to get you focused. Then to saddle up next time and go back and back again, you're incredible. You're incredible. The country, they owe you, and they this time they're more appreciative. In my generation, you didn't come home, get off an airplane in a uniform in an airport coming back from Vietnam. People treat you with respect, but they have no idea the sacrifices you make in theater. As we bring, we get close to bringing down the longest war drawdown in American history, a true presence in Afghanistan, I want to recognize the significance to of what all of you, the United States Armed Forces, have accomplished in the past 20 years. We went to Afghanistan with a clear purpose to get the people who attacked us on 9-11 and to prevent al-Qaeda from using Afghanistan as a base from which to attack America in the future. We achieved that purpose. You achieved that purpose. Year after year, deployment after deployment, American troops pursued the terrorist threat through some of the most unforgiving terrain on the planet. I have now had the pleasure, as they say, of being in every part of Afghanistan, from the FOBs up in the Konar Valley, down south, looking at all those poppy fields and all in between. It's one godforsaken landscape, but you all just showed up and did your job. And you helped make sure there hasn't been another attack from the homeland from Afghanistan for the last 20 years. And you never gave up until we delivered justice to Osama bin Laden. I got criticized after 9-11 for saying, we'll follow the son of a bitch's gun to the gates of hell till we get him. It's exactly what you did. It's exactly what you did. And you got him. And now as we draw down, we're also going to focus on the urgent work of rebuilding over the horizon capabilities that will allow us to take out al-Qaeda if they return to Afghanistan. But to focus on the threat that is metastasized, the greatest threat and likelihood of attack from al-Qaeda or ISIS is not going to be from Afghanistan. It's going to be from five other regions of the world that have significantly more presence of both al-Qaeda and organizational structures, including ISIS. We're going to update our security stance and turn our forces to the threats that will dominate our future to ensure the security of the American people for decades to come. But we'll never, ever, ever forget the terrible cost that we've paid as a nation. Many of you likely have lost friends and colleagues in Afghanistan and Iraq. I know this is personal to you, especially as you head into Memorial Day weekend. We as a nation will always remember and pay tribute to those we lost. After I announced my decision to end the war in Afghanistan, the first thing I did 
was visit, visit Section 60, Arlington National Cemetery. Just walk through those headstones. Seen all those stones. Our son did not die in Iraq, but he came back, went as an incredibly healthy young man, and came back with a severe brain tumor. Because his hooch was just downwind from those burn pits. I don't know if that's the reason, but he came home. It was just a matter of how long he lived. I still carry with me every single solitary day. I have my staff for the last since the war began. I have my schedule. In the back of my schedule, it says U.S. Daily Troop Update. U.S. troops died in Iraq and Afghanistan. 6,927, not over 6,000. Total fallen angels across the board, over 7,000. Every one of these lives lost is a tragedy. An empty seat at the dinner table, a missing voice at the holidays. Every one of them left behind a whole community, not just one whole community. We can never repay that debt. But I promise you this, to all the Gold Star families across the country, we will never, ever, ever, ever forget. Each year, Memorial Day offers us a chance to reflect on the enormity, the sacrifices that generation after generation of Americans has made, and the responsibilities that we bear, citizens bear, in return. I've said many times, it used to get me in trouble 25 years ago, 30 years ago in the Senate, So America has many obligations. We only have one sacred obligation. The obligations to our children, to the elderly, and so many more things. Only one sacred obligation is to prepare you when we send you into harm's way with everything you need, care for your families when you're gone, when you come home, care for you and your families and the needs that may be a consequence of the war. We owe it. We owe it to you. We particularly owe it to the memories to affirm the very best of what America stands for, to uphold honor and democratic values they're the foundation of the strength of this nation. You know, I sometimes get criticized for saying what I deeply believe, having done this for the bulk of my life. We're in a, we're in a battle between democracies and autocracies. The more complicated the world becomes, the more difficult it is for democracies to come together and reach consensus. I've spent more time with President Xi of China than any world leader has for 24 hours of private meetings with him, with just an interpreter, 17,000 miles traveling with him in China and here. He firmly believes that China, before the year 3035, is going to own America because autocracies can make quick decisions. But America is unique 
of all nations in the world. We're the only nation organized based on an idea. Every other nation you can define by their ethnicity, their geography, their religion, except America. America is born out of an idea. We hold these truths to be self-evident, but all men and women are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, etc. None of you get your rights from your government. You get your rights merely because you're a child of God. The government is there to protect those God-given rights. No other government's been based on that notion. No one can defeat us except us. It's an idea that generation of patriots have fought and died for it and defended. I know that's a conviction that each and every day you all share. That's why you joined up, why you run around danger and duty calls. It's my greatest honor. It should not surprise anybody. It should be anybody's greatest honor in all of life to be able to serve as your commander-in-chief. No greater honor. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for spending this time with me today. And thank you for your commitment to our country. Because without you, as I said, I'll be end where I began. You are the spine of America. The spine. I can't tell you how much it matters. I think you underestimate. It's the consequence of who you are and what you do. So thank you. May God bless you. And may God protect our troops. Thanks. You can listen to us on the go.
Tonight, inside the mass shooting here in California that killed nine transit workers, authorities now say the gunman deliberately targeted some of his co-workers going building to building, firing 39 shots. His weapons, three semi-automatic handguns and 32 illegal magazines. The surveillance of him before the horror, getting into a truck with a bag. And were warning signs missed, the nine victims now identified, ranging from 29 to 63. What we're learning about them. The travel crush, 37 million Americans hitting the road for Memorial Day. More states easing mask mandates. Could it be the most normal holiday since the pandemic hit? The mother of fallen Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick on the Hill urging GOP senators not to block a January 6th riot commission. Her powerful plea saying she couldn't stay quiet anymore. As the nation prepares to mark 100 years since the Tulsa massacre, my report on the new effort to shine a light on the city's dark past. And ahead of Memorial Day, the man on a mission for families of fallen World War II heroes. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt, reporting tonight from the Santa Monica Pier in California. Good evening. Millions of Americans are on the move tonight, reclaiming the rights of summer's unofficial start after more than a year of COVID. And we're on the road tonight, too, coming to you from the world-famous Santa Monica Pier in California. This evening, what travel looks like and how safe we are as we gather again in big numbers this Memorial Day weekend holiday. We'll get to that in a few moments, but first to Northern California, where the chilling details of yesterday's mass shooting in San Jose have been revealed. Nine people fatally gunned down by a co-worker at a transit rail yard. Today, we're learning more about the victims who spanned generations and lost their lives after reporting to work for a morning shift. Miguel Almaguer is there and has the latest. Tonight, survivors say the gunman was deliberate, fast, and targeted employees, murdering some and letting others live, moving from building to building during his killing spree, firing at least 39 shots armed with three handguns and 32 illegal high-capacity magazines. Authorities fear he planned to kill more than nine people at this rail yard before he was confronted by officers and took his own life. There was more than 100 people in this area, and the suspect had bags of ammunition. You think the bloodshed could have been much higher? I absolutely do. The sheriff says this video outside the gunman's home shows him leaving with his bag of weapons and ammunition. Tonight, investigators have found no manifesto or apparent motive. I wasn't shocked. The gunman's ex-wife says he was a loner and unpredictable, but never saw this coming. It's been the longest day of my life. Today, with families finally reunited, rail yard employees remembered the victims, who ranged in age from 29 to 63. Paul McGee's wife said of her husband, I'll miss having my best friend by my side. I love you always. Jose Hernandez's father says his son was filled with joy. He was just a good person. Uh, really, he was just a good person. Taptesh Singh, a husband and father of two, warned others the gunman was coming before he lost his own life. His last moments, he was still working for others. He was making phone calls to his friends saying, please, he's an active shooter, do not come in. Tonight, a final act of heroism in the face of so much terror. Miguel, it appears the gunman didn't have much in the way of a criminal history and had worked at that yard for some time. Yeah, Lester, he worked here for over a decade. He was making a comfortable living over $100,000 a year. Tonight, there is no clear reason why he suddenly snapped. 
Lester. Miguel Almaguer tonight in San Jose. Thank you. This evening, the kind of holiday travel crush we haven't seen in well over a year. Americans, as you can see around me, are feeling more confident, with over 165 million receiving at least one vaccine dose. California now offering a whopping $116 million in cash and gifts to encourage vaccinations, while Ohio has its first vaccine millionaire. Here's Morgan Radford. Finally, the wait is over. Tonight, Abigail Buginski is a millionaire just for getting vaccinated. I still can't believe it. She became the first winner of Ohio's million-dollar vaccination jackpot. It feels like this is happening to a different person. And 14-year-old Joseph Costello won a full-ride college scholarship. I was very happy about it. The Ohio lottery, just one of several state incentives to get people vaccinated as travel ramps up to pre-pandemic levels ahead of the holiday weekend. Do you feel comfortable traveling right now? I do. I've been traveling over the past year. I feel pretty safe, yeah. Travel experts predict 37 million people will get away this weekend, with nearly 2.5 million Americans boarding airplanes, up almost 600% from this time last year. We expect this week to be 115, 120,000 passengers each day. Miami International Airport offering on-site vaccinations for travelers. This as more states lift mask restrictions across the country. New Jersey will no longer require masks indoors starting Friday, just a day before Massachusetts fully reopens. New York sending mobile vaccination buses to the beach as Connecticut's governor encourages people to enjoy the summer. Today, I'm telling you, get out of the damn house. But not everyone is totally ready to return to normal. If people are social distancing, wearing masks, then I won't be in that area. President Biden wants 70% of all American adults to have received at least one shot by July 4th. So far, already about half of all states are on track to make that deadline. Lester? Morgan Radford tonight. Thank you, Morgan. For more on where we stand going into this weekend, I spoke with Dr. Paul Simon. He's the chief science officer at the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. What do you say to the thousands, millions who may crowd beaches like this up and down the state? Well, I would say uh, it is time to celebrate. We're definitely moving in the right direction. Our numbers are very low. I think people can feel comfortable being out. But very importantly, we want as many people as possible to be vaccinated. Are you still asking for social separation because it's obviously not happening? Ideally, we want separation, but very importantly, uh, much safer to be outside than inside. I think out here, particularly at the beach, where there's a nice breeze, uh, I think it's very, very safe. But as you can see, there are a number of people that are wearing masks, and we would encourage that. At one point at the depth of this pandemic, these beaches were closed, and now we're told that being outside is probably the safest, right, around this moving air. So can you defend the science then and now? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think critically, a critical difference, I think, between then and now was that the virus was circulating at much higher levels. Uh, we're clearly seeing less circulating virus. I think we can attribute a lot of that to the successful efforts to get people vaccinated. There is a, a certain level of natural immunity uh, in the population as well. So fair to say you're feeling pretty good about this holiday weekend? Yeah, I would say, again, cautiously optimistic. We are urging people, again, to, to uh, you know, sort of maintain some uh, adherence to, to the masks and to distancing. But we're expecting come mid-June, you know, across California, we're going to be opening things back up. 
The mother of a U.S. Capitol police officer who died a day after the January 6th attack on the Capitol was on Capitol Hill today pleading to Republican senators to support a commission looking into the riot. Here's Peter Alexander. Tonight, an emotional last-minute plea from the mother of the late Capitol Police officer, Brian Sicknick. Usually I'm staying in the background, and I just couldn't, I couldn't stay quiet anymore. Gladys Sicknick on Capitol Hill personally lobbying Senate Republicans to back a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th attack, calling their opposition a slap in the face. Brian Sicknick died of natural causes the day after the riot. This was to uphold the Constitution, and right now I don't think they're doing it. 35 Republicans in the House joined Democrats to approve the commission. Tonight, President Biden in Ohio denounced Senate Republicans who oppose it. I can't imagine anyone voting against the establishment of the commission on the greatest assault since the Civil War. But most Republican senators say the attack by a pro-Trump mob is already being investigated by law enforcement and Congress, accusing Democrats of a purely political exercise. They'd like to continue to litigate the former president into the future. Then there's President Biden's trimmed down $1.7 trillion infrastructure plan. Republicans have slammed his proposals as a tax and spending spree, their latest counteroffer today, moving closer to a trillion dollars, focused on roads, bridges, and public transit, and without the tax hikes President Biden is calling for. What makes them think we want to undo the tax reform that gave us the best economy of my lifetime? President Biden says he'll meet with Senate Republicans again next week. The White House set Memorial Day as a deadline for progress. And today, the president warned negotiations need to end soon. Lester. Peter Alexander at the White House. Thanks. Less than a month after hackers took down a major fuel pipeline on the East Coast, the Biden administration is ordering oil and gas companies to do more to prevent it from happening again. Tom Costello has details for us. Three weeks after gas stations went temporarily dry and fuel prices soared, Homeland Security today ordered oil and gas companies to take immediate steps to guard against another cyber attack. Designate a company's cybersecurity coordinator who's available 24-7. Review company operations and notify Homeland Security of any cyber vulnerabilities within 30 days and immediately report and coordinate cyber incidents. Companies that don't comply could be fined up to $7,000 a day. Ransomware is one of the greatest cybersecurity threats that we face in the United States. But it's the TSA that's in charge of pipeline cybersecurity. The former director of Homeland Cybersecurity, CISA, says TSA can't do it alone. We need additional support from other agencies like CISA, like the intelligence community, uh, and also the Department of Energy. Meanwhile, big oil is facing another potential threat. Shareholders at Exxon and Chevron determined to force those companies to more aggressively address climate change, while a Dutch court has ordered Shell to cut greenhouse emissions by 45% within nine years. The wake-up call loud and clear for big oil for both shareholders and the courts. Change your business model to better combat climate change. It comes as gas prices hit a seven-year high following that cyber hack, and the green movement is gaining momentum worldwide. Lester? All right, Tom Costello, thanks. Now to the alarming rise of anti-Asian hate crimes and the fear leading many parents to keep their children out of school. Let's get more now from Vicki Wynn. 14-year-old Aiden Nakajima Wu worked hard to make it into New York's Stuyvesant High. What were you most looking forward to as a freshman? Uh, probably making new friends in high school. 
It hasn't happened. First, COVID kept him home, but even after in-person classes resumed, his mom, Mina, says the headlines about assaults on Asian-Americans instilled on Asian a new layer of happening. fear. I really felt unsafe sending him, you know, all the way downtown by himself. Have you ever experienced this kind of fear and anxiety before? Not really. Nothing really has made me this scared for my life. National data shows just 18% of Asian-American students are attending school in person, trailing any other demographic. At PS 130 in New York City's Chinatown, where nearly 87% of the students are Asian-American, just 30% have opted for in-person learning. Principal Rennie Fong says it's not just the pandemic. Is there an additional layer of anxiety for your Asian-American students and families? Yes. One parent uh, said, oh, Mr. Fong, can we have more of a police presence? You're, you're, he uses know, these uh, mood meters anxious, to help the angry, students um, and staff. They felt like we went through a grieving process, too. And to love a country and sometimes feel, oh, I'm not getting that love back, you know, hurt in the beginning. But then it became so hopeful because so many people came out in solidarity. For the Nakajima Wu family, hope that Asian Americans can soon feel safe on the streets and in schools. I hate them having to feel like they're not American enough. Vicki Nguyen, NBC News. Up next, a city confronts the worst act of racial violence in U.S. history a century later. It began 100 years ago this Monday. A white mob attacked a thriving black neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, killing hundreds of people, destroying homes and businesses and dreams. Now, the Tulsa massacre is getting new attention as we confront issues of racial justice today. Everything you can think of was here. Christy Williams has made it her life's work to highlight the vibrant black history of Tulsa. She gives tours and tells tales about the successful yet segregated Black Wall Street that stood here 100 years ago, before it was destroyed. What compels you to do this, to, to, to tell this history? You know, I feel that I owe it to my great-aunt Janie. Her great-aunt Janie was on a date a century ago at the Dreamland Theater when her life changed in an instant. As many as 300 black Tulsans were killed, nearly 10,000 left homeless, and 35 square blocks reduced to ashes. 1,000 black businesses and homes looted, burned to the ground. It all began after a black teen was arrested for allegedly assaulting a white girl. A white mob gathered to lynch the man while a group of black men gathered to defend him. A shot rang out, leading to the worst act of racial violence in U.S. history. No one was ever held accountable, and that day went unmarked in history books. In the white community, there was very much a concerted effort to cover this up. You didn't talk about it because you had to work with those same people who came into your homes and, and who murdered your family and your friends. And just like that, the stories from that day were covered up, along with hundreds of bodies. The white authorities didn't care about what happened to the massacre victims. They had a health problem. They were trying to get rid of the bodies as quickly as possible. Only two known victims received a proper burial. But now, after years of advocacy from survivors, descendants, and references in pop culture, the city is working to find those unmarked graves, using ground-penetrating radar to unearth the century-old secrets. In October, we discovered 12 
plain pine box coffins that we believe contain the remains of massacre victims. We don't know if there are others underneath them. The coffins will be exhumed next month. What do you want to come out of this? How should Tulsa own this shame? Let's get those remains to those families um, so they can have a proper burial. But then this is where the drum roll of justice actually begins. Aunt Janie survived that terrifying day, but Christy and the community are hoping the dig will help put a spotlight on Tulsa's dark history to help rebuild a brighter future. There will not be closure for the Tulsa Race Massacre for a long time, but I think that this will be a reckoning and this will be a step towards healing and reconciliation. That dig is set to resume on Tuesday, the same day President Biden is expected to visit Tulsa. Up next for us tonight, discovering the lost submarines of World War II in those who served. As we headed into the Memorial Day weekend, a story of loss and discovery and the search for the 52 American submarines that disappeared during World War II. Frederick Cashel was a Navy engineer with a dangerous job, test running submarines during World War II. But to his daughter, Helen Cashel Baldwin, he was just daddy. I thought he was Popeye because he was a sailor man. When did you first learn that something was wrong? When uh, a couple of naval officers came to our house. The USS R-12 submarine her father was on had disappeared in the Florida Straits. I found myself looking for him because there was never a funeral. There was nothing. Nothing until 70 years later, a discovery by ocean explorer Tim Taylor, who found the R-12 on the bottom of the ocean. It was not like any other discovery I'd ever made. There were 42 uh, souls on board that. Taylor built a website and announced he was looking for surviving relatives. Thanks to a nephew fascinated by submarines, the website was emailed to Helen. Well, I called, and it was Tim Taylor. And um, we talked, and I was so excited that I could, I could say that I was his daughter. Taylor made it his mission to find the rest of the lost 52 submarines from World War II. So far, he's found five. And this week, he was honored with the Navy's highest civilian award, the Distinguished Public Service Medal. The historic value and importance of our work focuses on giving back to these families who supported our country with the ultimate sacrifice. For every family he finds comes the opportunity of a lifetime. Helen and her siblings sailed out directly above where the R-12 rests at the bottom of the ocean. 70 years of waiting. It was a um, life-changing experience. That's nightly news for this Thursday from Santa Monica. Thank you for watching, everyone. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. Hey, NBC News viewers. Thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching.